And uh, uh, before we do that, I'm going to pray for our time. Father, Lord, would you uh, bring light to your word this morning? Lord, uh, open our eyes to be able to see your truth. Illuminate our understanding. Father, we ask, Lord, for your help, for your Spirit's help to, to get to know you better. Lord, to see your work in our lives more clearly. And so, Lord, we pray that this, um, this passage, Lord, would be edifying for our bodies and edifying for our souls and would meet us where we're at. We thank you for your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been dealt a bad hand in life? Whether it's uh, illness, health issues, uh, financial hardships, depression, family difficulties, relational difficulties. Have you ever been dealt a bad hand in life? This passage is about a young man who was dealt such a hand. The story is of a young man who was blind from birth. He never saw. And, and we're going to look at this story and see what is God doing in the midst of this young man? What is this man's response to what God is doing? And, and I'm going to highlight several responses that we see in this passage. Some good, some bad responses. Four responses. And the context is in chapter 8, Jesus has just got himself into a bit of trouble by saying that he's God. And if you remember, he didn't say, I'm God, like literally, but he said something that was uh, unmistakably uh, interpreted as him saying he's God. He said, um, before Abraham was, I am, uh, which is a lovely statement to make. Uh, the Pharisees didn't like it. They wanted to stone him. Because they understood him to be committing blasphemy. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He's using that term to say he's God and he existed before someone that they revered as one of their fathers, Abraham. So you might think that Jesus would lay low for a bit, right? He's, he's got the Pharisees on his back wanting to kill him. Somehow he's able to escape. Maybe Jesus would just lay low. He would just chill. He would become invisible. Uh, but that's not what happens. Jesus continues to work. And so here we come to this chapter. And I, I want you to uh, do something for me. I, I want you to use your imagination. And I actually want you to close your eyes. So please, uh, close your eyes and just listen. Pretend you're, you are a young man or a young woman. 20 years of age. You've been blind since birth. You never saw the smile of your mom or dad. You never saw the vibrant color of a sunset or a sunrise. You've never seen rolling hills or majestic mountains. You've never looked someone in the eyes and knew what they were thinking without words. 
You've been unable, or you've been able to hear the roar of the sea, but never able to cast your eyes upon its vastness. What can you see right now? Nothing? Now squint your eyes tighter. Notice how it got darker? Because we're not truly blind. We still perceive light, but imagine if it were ten times darker than right now. You're young. Your parents can no longer afford to take care of you. You have to find a job. There's several things you would love to do. You think farming could be cool. I like sheep. Maybe, maybe tending sheep could be good. But you know that no one will hire you because of your blindness. And so you have to resort to the only thing that you know you can do, which is go to the streets and beg. Darkness is all you've known, and you're painfully aware of this. This is a bum deal. And worst of all, for the life of you, you cannot understand why you deserve this. Please keep your eyes closed. I'm going to read the first part of the passage. Chapter 9, 1 through 7. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. You may open your eyes. The first point that I want to talk about, God works with a purpose. God works with a purpose. When you have a purpose... You're not waiting for something to happen. When you have a purpose, you're not waiting for something to happen. When I get up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, I have a purpose. And that purpose is breakfast. Breakfast doesn't happen to me. I have a purpose to have breakfast, so I make breakfast. When we have a purpose, we are proactive and not reactive. And and that's what we see going on in this passage. Jesus has a purpose. He's proactive and not reactive. He sees this man who's blind. And and it's important that, that you can see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is on a mission. I don't know if, if you've ever done this. I've done this. You see, out of the corner of your eye, someone who's struggling, obviously, but you try not to see them, 
for various reasons. I'm busy. I got to get somewhere. I don't have time, right? Whatever reason you make up, we, we see them, but we don't see them. So it's kind of like, oh, Jesus doesn't do that. He sees this man who's blind, and he focuses his gaze on this man, and he interacts with him. Why? As we read the story, he has a purpose, and his purpose, he wasn't, Jesus is the one leading here. I mean, I think you understand that. Like, it's Jesus and his followers, his disciples. Jesus is running the show. He's going where he wants to go. He intentionally goes by this blind man, and he looks at him with a purpose. So what is that purpose? Well, the purpose is beyond our understanding, and Jesus is about to demonstrate that through the question that his disciples ask. Now, his disciples say, uh, (coughs) excuse me, Rabbi, who sinned, this is verse 2, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And I think their, their question betrays an assumption that we often have in life. It's this cause-effect um, calculations that we do. Um, if you are in a bad situation, then it must be because you did something to be in that situation. Or someone else did something. Your parents, they have this idea that, that if you are not blessed, right, whatever that looks like, you're blind, you are paralyzed, you are poor, uh, something you did or something your parents did got you in that situation. So they're asking Jesus, which is it? Was it his sin that he's blind or was it his parents' sin that he's blind? And Jesus answers, no. (laughs) It's none of the above. You just gave the wrong multiple choice answers. There's a third option, which he gives in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Jesus had a purpose for why he was blind. And it didn't have anything to do with their preconceived notions as to what causes people's situations. It's an important thing for us to understand because it's so easy with a mindset that, that, that looks at simple cause-effect. If, if If this negative thing happens, then something negative must have been done to create that situation. And we use that to try to control situations, right? If if I can, if I believe that achieving a successful life is simply a matter of doing the right things, that's a formula for control. And as soon as I hear or experience things that violate that rule, then my control is challenged. My authority is challenged. And so they want to believe, and sometimes we want to believe that it's that simple. Because on the flip side, if I do good things, if I don't sin, if I follow the rules, then I get the good life. And it's a simple matter. If they don't have the good life, then it must have means I didn't follow the rules. Now, this passage is an interesting look at suffering. Now, the blind man certainly was suffering. He's been blind since birth. And sometimes suffering is a result of sin. Sometimes it is a result of sin. If if I choose to work during a time where 
Stephanie, my wife, is expecting us to do something fun together. And then I suffer for half a day or a day of her being mad at me. I'm not a victim. Right? Do you understand that? I made a choice that incurred suffering. If you choose to speed on the highway and you get stopped by the police and they give you a ticket and you're suffering the the embarrassment and the humility and you're suffering the indignation of having this fine that you have to pay, you're you're suffering because of something you did, okay? That's not victim. So that's not what I'm talking about and that's not what this is talking about here. Sometimes we suffer as a result of nothing that we've done. It's not a punishment. It's not God being mad at us. It's suffering that's come upon us for nothing that we did or nothing that our parents did. It's just suffering. And I think we've all experienced that at some point in our lives. We've, we've, we've been given a bad deck of cards, so to speak, or a bad hand. And we might ask questions, why? Like, why has God given me the sand? And we might sometimes think, did I do something to deserve it? I remember growing up, um, I, I'm not a person who's experienced a lot of physical pain in my life. But growing up, I had some emotional pain. And the thing that I struggled with the most as a child was having parents that weren't together. My mom and dad split when I was a baby. And I remember oftentimes feeling like I was caught in between. And I don't know if, you've, if, if some of you can relate to this, that they weren't together and yet they still fought each other. And, and, and sometimes, you know, my mom would tell me stuff about my dad and my dad would tell me stuff about my mom and I didn't know what to believe. And there were many times and many tears that I cried because I was caught in this situation. I, I, I knew that I didn't do anything to deserve this, and yet I'm in it. Like there was no escape. Like these are my parents, and I'm just a child. And I was asking God, why is it like this? And, and to look at this story, Jesus is saying to this blind man, or about this blind man, He was blind, not because of his sin, not because he deserved it, per se, but for God's purposes, for God's works that they might be displayed in him. And what I've been able to see in my own life is, over time, God has given me perspective to see that, you know what, God was with me in those times. That God helped me through those times. That God has given me a vision and a perspective about that that will help me in the future and Jesus is saying, this man was blind. Now, don't get law. Don't, don't lose the fact that he was blind for 20 years, about. He's a young man, but he's old enough to be on his own. So he's 15 to 20 years old. That's 15 to 20 years of being blind. 15 to 20 years of suffering. And, and the Bible does never, never promises us that we won't have suffering. In fact, it says you probably will. And sometimes that suffering will be prolonged suffering. And we only need to look to a few different examples. Paul, 
in Second uh, Corinthians. Paul, by the way, wrote half of the New Testament. Paul is looked up to as a person who was very faithful, very obedient to God, at least post-conversion. And yet Paul himself suffered. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, that, or we, we read about this. Paul says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is, made per- is perfected in weakness. Paul is given this thorn. Now, we don't know for sure what the thorn is. It doesn't say, but it's something painful. When you think about a thorn, it's painful. It hurts. You don't want thorns on your body, right? And so he's praying to God three times, three heartfelt prayers. God, remove these thorns from me. Remove these thorns from me. Remove these thorns from me. And God answers, no. I'm not going to remove these thorns from you. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. And my power is perfected in weakness. In other words, we see something of God in our weakness that we would not see apart from the weakness. That's the beauty of what God does. And it's hard to see it. No one would ever pray for thorns. Raise your hands if you're praying for thorns. I'm not praying for thorns. Ross is. I'm not. And I'm not telling you to pray for thorns. I'm saying God might give you thorns in his sovereign will for your good, to see God more clearly. And this is what he was doing with this blind man. 20 years of blindness. And he says, for this moment, when I'm going to reveal something to him, that's what Jesus does. He sought this man out. He didn't ignore him. He was on a mission to meet that blind man, and he heals him. Second point, people respond to God's work in ways that are either open and accepting or closed and rejecting. People respond to God's work in ways that are either open and accepting or closed and rejecting. The the first response is the response of the blind man that I want to highlight. Now, this is very interesting. It's interesting because of the way that Jesus chooses to heal the blind man. Um, Verse 6. After he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left washed and came back seeing. Jesus spits on the ground. That's weird. And then he gets on the ground and he makes mud. That's weird. Now the blind man, he doesn't see what's going on, right? He's just standing there. Maybe he hears him, I don't know. 
he hears what's going on. He's here. He's probably really good. And he makes this mud, and he puts it on the blind man's eyes. Now, how many of you are germaphobes? <laughs> I know my wife is. That's pretty disgusting, right? I mean, if you're honest, that's, that's some odd stuff that Jesus is doing. And he puts it on his eyes, and he says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, what is this? Think about the response of this man. He's still blind. He's not seeing yet. He has a choice on how to respond. He's not forced to go. How many of you would go? You just had mud rubbed into your eyes. How many of you would just stay there and let him keep rubbing mud and spit in your eyes? And yet he responds by going. He, he goes before he sees. That's called faith. And this is the first verse. He's open to God's word because, because this method of healing is not anything we would invent or dream of. In fact, it seems the opposite. He's taking what is by definition unclear and using it to bring clarity. And so it, it's going to take more than logic to get you to go and follow his direction. It's going to take more than common knowledge to go and follow his direction. It's going to take faith. Believing, understanding that Jesus must be doing something. That Je- now, he's heard of Jesus. Later, we'll find out that he was aware of who Jesus was. And, and perhaps that played into why he was willing to actually take a step of faith because there was some knowledge about this person, Jesus. But it's interesting, he responds in openness, and he responds in faith. And, and sometimes if, you know, we just want to see it before we do it, right? I, that's, that's me. Like, I don't like taking steps off into the void. Like, I want to see that there's a next, that there's something solid beneath me so that I don't fall. And sometimes I think God asks us to go before we can see. Why? Because we can respond trusting him and not what we can see with our own eyes, and that glorifies God. So the first response is openness, and uh, so he goes, he follows what Jesus says. He washes in the, plum, or in, the, in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, which is interesting, but I don't have time to go into that. He can see now. He's been healed after he makes the step of faith. Verse 8. <clears throat> His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He's the one. Others were saying, No, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go wash, or go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. I don't know, he said. Now he's excited, right? He can see now, 20 years blind, now he can see 
And now he goes back, and the people who've seen him are like, that looks like the guy who was begging, but it can't be because he can see. And so some people believe. Some people are like, that is the guy. And some people are like, not. And he's like, no, 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 I'm telling you. I'm the one. That used to be me right there sitting. I could see. Now I could see. And they're like, how can you see? And he tells them. It must feel weird to share that story, right? Uh, they put mud and spit in my eyes, and then I could see. But that's what happened. Now, he's excited. The, his friends, are they excited? Maybe. Some are excited. Some are not so excited. And here's why. We find out in verse 13. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Why did they do that? This is, this is something where it's helpful to know kind of what's going on in this context. Um, he got healed on the Sabbath. And making mud, it's a big no-no. Because that's working. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But the interesting thing is what happens in in this context with the religious leaders of their day, um, they have the, the law of God. God said, obey, honor the Sabbath, don't work, okay? But there's a lot left to interpretation, and so they built up these traditions um, that interpreted what exactly it means not to work, and so um, making mud was one of those things. Um, so that was what they were violating. So some of his friends were going like, oh, I don't know, this sounds like a naughty thing that happened. And so they bring him to the Pharisees. That was verse 13. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. That day Jesus made the mud, and, or the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He responded, he put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. And this is the second response that I want to highlight, is the response from the Pharisees. They are closed to God's works. They're, they're not open. They're closed to God's works. And, and the thing that closes their eyes to God's works is they have built up this elaborate system of laws. Okay, And one of those laws had to do with how do you obey the Sabbath. Stuff that they've added interpret it and lifted it up to the point of being like definitive and authoritative and, and because the report is that Jesus did these works on the Sabbath he made mud which is a bad thing they're close to seeing the good thing that God just did right God just did a very good thing and they can't see it and so you start to get this interesting picture you have the man who's born blind, and you have these religious leaders who come in and start examining this great work that God has done, and they can't see it. They're also blind, but blind in a different way. They're blinded by their own rules, by their own hard hearts, because they've built up this elaborate system, and they're the ones who keep control over it. They're the ones in power. They're the ones 
and authority from a religious standpoint. And Jesus is a threat to that. They don't like it. And they don't like Jesus. We already know they don't like Jesus. That's what we've been reading. They want to kill him. And so now they're mounting additional evidence against him. Verse 18. It's a continuation of their same response. A deepening of it to rejecting the truth. So being close to God's works and then rejecting the truth. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So there's this there's this pressure that's at play. Um, they've already, the Jews have already made it clear, if you side with this Jesus guy, you're going to be ostracized from community. The synagogue was, was their community. So it wasn't, just, you know, it wasn't just a club that was sort of optional. To be banned from the synagogue was to be ostracized from their community, and they didn't want that. So they're, they're, they're really treading lightly here. They're saying, eh, we don't know how he received sight. We don't know who did it. Ask him. He, he'll tell you. And so the, the Pharisees don't even believe that a work happened. They said they didn't believe the man's story. He's testifying. I was blind. Now I see. Right? He's got friends, of course, that are around. They're like, yeah, I think that was him. Maybe it's not. So there's definitely this commotion that's going on. And so they're, they don't want to believe it, but they're forced to continue going down this path of investigation. So they bring his parents in. And his parents say, yeah, that is our son. And he was blind. How he sees, I don't know, but he can see. Ask him. So the Pharisees ask him. Before I move forward, it's, it's just interesting how hard their hearts are. Like, they won't acknowledge that this great work has happened. Even after his parents confirmed, this, was, this is my son, he was blind, he obviously sees. Like, you would think that would be the point where they would go, oh, wow, God has done a great work. Praise Jesus. Not, they wouldn't say that. Praise God. But they don't. Because their hearts have been hardened. And you can see just how blind they are. And, and what happens, I think, is they're blinded by these presuppositions, these preconceived notions about what is truth, what is right. And I think we do this today. We have so much division and polarization in our society because we have these preconceived notions. You could go political, right? If you have the label of Democrat, then, ooh, you're, 
on the bad side. If you have the label of Republican, ooh, you're on the bad side. And we prejudge those who have those labels because we already have in our minds this worldview that says, well, if you're, you're, you're only Christian if you're Republican. And therefore, nothing good can come from a Democrat. Or you're only Christian if you're Democrat, and nothing good can come from a Republican. We do this with race. We do this with all sorts of things that we use to blind ourselves to the other side. And that's what they're doing. They've just lifted up these laws and said, if you don't fit within these confines, this label of what it means to be godly, then you can't be doing anything good. And they miss the blatant, obvious evidence in front of them that God has done a work. And now this blind man is going to start to take the Pharisees to task, the man who was blind. And this is a fun part of the passage. Verse 24 through 34. Probably my favorite part. All right. So, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether or not, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciples, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. You can just imagine, (laughs) chuckle, chuckle. It was kind of a, uh, 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 they were alluding to the fact that they didn't really know where he was from because his father was not his father. and So there's rumors about Jesus that he didn't really know where he's from. So they're just kind of laughing about that in the background. This is just my reading into it. That's not part of the text. So, all right. The man who was blind's response in verse 30. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. I think it's a good argument. right? I mean, he's basically saying, look, it wasn't like I could see and then I had a disease or a condition and started to go blind but then had something that healed me. Like we've seen that, but we haven't seen someone who was born without eyesight get healed. Like can't you see that this is God's work? That's his argument. And their response in verse 34, you were born entirely in sin, they replied. Are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. They threw him out. It's interesting, his response, um, his testimony, his witness, the, the man who was blind is rejected. And I don't know if you've ever felt this before. You, you, you 
trying to communicate to someone truth, testimony. Because you love them, you care about them, you want them to know the truth, and, and yet you're rejected. The door shut on you. It's not on account of the art. It's not a bad argument. It's not, it's not like the blind man is telling untrue things. He's telling true things. But who he's telling it to is blind. They can't see. And I say this because I've experienced this recently. It's like it's too fresh and raw, really, to share the details at this point. But I felt that rejection. Like you try to tell someone some truth. And they've just said, not going to receive it. And that's what they're doing to this brother. But I want to encourage you to, to know that it's not up to us to change people's hearts. We can't do it. That's not our role. That's not our responsibility. We need to understand sometimes people are blind. They can't see, which means no amount of logic, no amount of good testimony is going to get through that apart from God opening their eyes. And so don't be discouraged in those situations. Sometimes the door is going to be slammed in our face, and that's okay. We can pray to God, and we can ask him to help, and we can ask him to intervene. It's not up to us. Because if we understand that we too are blind, and we understand that it's God who opens our eyes, then that forces us, it should encourage us to go to God and say, Lord, the way that you opened my eyes when I couldn't see, Lord, would you open their eyes so that they could see? It's not up to me. It's not up to us. It's God who opens eyes and not us. The last response, we read the response of the blind man. So the blind man, the one who was blind, um, connects with Jesus. And this is in verse 35, 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. The response is accepting the truth. Now, he was open to being healed. He got healed, and now he meets Jesus again. Jesus is actually seeking him out again. And Jesus asked the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, I used to didn't understand what that meant. I used to think um, the response, he's like, who is the Son of Man that I may believe in him? Like, he's not asking him, he's not asking Jesus, like, what is the Son of Man? Like, who is the Son of Man person? He's asking him, identify the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus liked to use about himself. And it comes from Daniel 7, most likely. In, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel has this vision. And in that vision, he sees kingdom after kingdom of corrupt kingdoms ruling the earth. And there's all sorts of evil. There's all sorts of corruption 
on the earth. And at the end of all these kingdoms, he sees the ancient of days in the heavens, who's God. And he sees this other figure who's called like a son of man going before the ancient of days. And that son of man is given all dominion and all authority and all the nations and all the languages and all the kingdoms would bow and worship this son of man. And he would uh, erase all the corrupted kingdoms of the world and a new kingdom would rise in its place ruled by the son of man. And anyone who knew their word, would understand that. They would see that. So when he's saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, who is the Son of Man? He knows. Who is it? Who? Tell me, who is that person? That's what he's saying. Because otherwise it doesn't make sense by his response. The response when he says, basically, I'm the Son of Man. He, he's excited about it. He says, I believe you and worshiped him. So he sees Jesus as fulfilling this prophecy from Daniel that he's the coming one who will, who will set everything right that's wrong in the world. He is the king who's coming, who will raise up a new kingdom that will trample all of these big, powerful kingdoms that have oppressed people and replace it with a kingdom and a king who will rule righteously forever. And he gets to see who that is in Jesus. He believes, he receives, he accepts the truth that Jesus has revealed to him, and it's it's. It's not disconnected from the power of what God did in his life. That made him ready to see. He was open to what God was doing. He was ready to receive the truth when Jesus said, this is the truth. He's open to it. And this was Jesus' mission. This was his purpose from the beginning. He wasn't randomly going by this guy. He didn't randomly stop him. He went there on purpose. He looked him in the eyes and he said, I'm going to heal you because God's works, because your purpose was for God's works to be evident through this suffering. And I care about you and I love you. And this is going to be part of the grand story that God is weaving throughout all history. He receives and accepts the truth from Jesus. Now, we've looked at these different responses Openness to God's works, close to God's works, rejecting God's truth and accepting God's truth. What are the, the consequences of our responses? And that brings me to the last point. The more you think you see, the more blind you become. But the more you can see your blindness, the more ready you'll be to receive sight. I'll read that one more time. The more you think you see, the more blind you become, but the more that you can see your blindness, the more ready you'll be to receive sight. Where do I get this from? Verse 39 through 41. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment. In order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. 
Now, he, Jesus says, I've come to bring judgment. It's important to know that um, there's no contradiction between what Jesus has said in the past. In John uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when Jesus is talking about judgment, he's not talking about ultimate condemnation. What he's talking about in the context is the differentiation between how people respond. That our response indicates a judgment of sorts. Jesus has come to save. He's come to open people's eyes. But if we continue to say we see, then we don't need a physician to heal us. Does that make sense? If we think we're good, we don't need any help. I can see clearly when in actuality that's not the case, then we don't make ourselves available to the physician's healing. When I was 15, I had pneumonia. I was adamant that I had a cold for weeks on end. I just have a, I'm just coughing. I'm just sneezing. I'm good. Until I fainted in the hallway with a 104-degree temperature, a thud. I don't remember it. I just remember being on the ground, and I remember my mom calling out, Caleb, are you okay? Uh, yeah, uh-huh, I am. I'm fine. She comes out. She sees me on the ground. She says, I think you're not okay. I said, I think you're right. <laughs> right? Unless we acknowledge that we're sick, we won't go and seek help. And what Jesus is saying is, for those who think they can see, they won't make themselves available for God's help. But those who understand that they can't see, those are the ones that God heals. And that's his point. Can we see our blindness? Can we see our shortfalls? Can we see our shortcomings? Can we see the ways in which we don't have it all together? We don't have it all under control. We, we don't have life lined up the way we want it to be. Can we admit that we need help? Can we admit that, admit that we don't see clearly, that we see through a fog, and we need God to bring clarity? If, if that's true, we're in a very good spot. We're in a very good spot when we can admit. It doesn't mean you're weak. Actually, it does mean you're weak, but it doesn't mean you're condemned. And that's the difference. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to need a crutch, as Mike Gunn preached the other week. It's okay. Jesus is my crutch. He's more than my crutch. He's my whole world and my foundation. He's underneath. He's above. He's around me. I need him. And I'm not ashamed to admit that. And that's the beauty of what God is doing. He's saying, I've come for those who can see that they need him. And so whether we're going through suffering of our own doing or whether we're going through suffering that's not our own doing, the point is to acknowledge that regardless, we're not in control and we need his help. And God is saying, I want to give you that help through Jesus. That's why Jesus came. His judgment is actually that we would get to know him and see him 
and believe in him and trust that he is the son of man. He is the one who's come to rule and to set things right. And we may go through suffering in the interim, but that's not the end. That's not the goal. It's just suffering for suffering's sake. The goal is to be with Jesus. And sometimes he leads us through suffering to see him more clearly until we get to that day when we're face to face, when there are no more tears, there's no more suffering, there's no more pain, there's no more hardships, there's no more struggling with, with uh, the sin that we have, that we can, we can enter into his presence pure, holy, righteous forever. I want to close by reading a, a journal entry that I wrote several years ago. And um, if you're suffering, and I know there's people in this room now who are, who are going through suffering. And if you're not going through suffering, you will go through suffering at some point. And, and I, I wrote this journal entry just reflecting on just the little bit of suffering I had. And how do, you, how do you respond when you're suffering? How do you respond when you have pain? How do you respond when you're going through relational issues? And this is what I wrote. It's, it's regards to physical pain. But I, I hope that this might help. I spent this morning in agony as I either got the stomach flu or ate something that didn't agree with me the previous night. When I woke up this morning at 5.30, it started as a dull pain, a pain that might be mistaken as a little extra gas. However, this seemed slightly different, and sure enough, a half hour passed and the pain was getting worse. Pretty soon, my worst fears were confirmed as I began to feel nauseous. I will spare you the details, but suffice to say, I became very acquainted with the toilet. I'm not a man who's, who has experienced much physical pain in his life, so as I went through seven hours of excruciating stomach cramps, body aches, and nausea, it felt foreign to me since it's been years since I felt something similar. As I was suffering, unable to escape, I asked myself, what if my life was characterized by suffering? Not just emotionally, but physically. How would I deal with it? Would I still be happy and joyful? Would I curse God? What if I were to go through what Job went through? Could I say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him? How real is my faith? How real is my conviction? And then I thought about Jesus and how he was obedient to die on the cross. Despite everything in his body telling him not to do so, Jesus, the God-man, asked God the Father not to go to the cross with three distinct heartfelt prayers. But there was no escaping the suffering that had been planned for him. What is it in that intense time of suffering that enables him to persevere? In the Bible it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see, the Bible doesn't call us to suffer for suffering's sake. 
Suffering in and of itself is a great evil unless it is a means to an end. An end that is more joyful and glorious than we can even imagine. It is for this reason that we Christians have hope for enduring great suffering. We have an inheritance from God that is guaranteed by the power of faith in Christ. Though I can't pretend to know exactly how I would respond under prolonged suffering, I do know that God does not test us beyond what we are able to handle. And just as he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness, so also he says to us, we have a great and glorious God who has promised us an abundant, joyful, and eternal life. And if God sees fit to refine us as silver and to test us as gold, we can be confident that it is ultimately for our benefit that God may be glorified in us, demonstrating not man's ability to persevere, but God's ability to hold on to his sheep, despite the presence of whatever worldly roadblocks lie between us and God. And so in suffering, God's love is magnified and his pursuit is unstoppable. And we are blessed to know of such a God who is able to conquer all evil and bring us into his presence for all eternity. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for giving us spiritual sight. I thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to see our need for you. Lord, for those who are having trouble seeing, seeing your goodness, seeing your purpose, or seeing our own sin, I pray, Father, that you would grant us sight. Help us to see Lord, how much we need you, how much we depend on you. Help us to see how good you are and how much you love us and how you want to be gracious to us and give us more than we could ever imagine or more than we deserve. And Father, I pray for those who are suffering right now, for those who are depressed, for those who are heartbroken, for those who have physical pain and sickness, Lord, for those who are sad, Father, would you meet us in our need? Lord, would your presence bring comfort? Would your presence bring hope? Would your presence even bring joy in the midst of pain and suffering? The joy of knowing that you're with us and the joy of knowing that suffering has an expiration date. Father, we thank you for the joy of knowing Jesus' salvation for us. And we pray 
Lord, that we would cling to your hope, Lord, as you cling on to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, At this time, uh, we celebrate every week communion. So we have bread and wine um, where we remember uh, what Jesus did for us. He purposely went to the cross. He was on a mission to go to the cross, to die for our sins, to enable a way for us to be with God. And so we remember that sacrifice through partaking of bread and wine or juice, his body broken, his blood shed. So I encourage you to reflect on that, to think about that, to be thankful for that. And then when you're ready, come and come and eat, and come and drink and, and celebrate God's death or Jesus' death until he comes again.